0: Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, coming to you from the pop-up Chinese studios here in Beijing. I am Jeremy Goldcorn, hosting solo today as Kaiser is in Milano, Italy. Today is the second last day of May. The year is nearly half over, but in the last few months we've done very, very few podcasts about news or current affairs. So today I'd like to take a rolling look back at the last half a year of news in China, Uh, and review the year so far. There have also been many stories in the news very recently about babies and children and families. Sadly, many of them are not very pleasant stories, but we're going to be taking a focused look at families and children in China. I'm joined today by Frequent Senegal guest, Tanya Branigan, who is the China correspondent for The Guardian newspaper since 2009. And also a fellow admirer of the Azure-winged magpie. Welcome back to Seneca, Tanya.
1: Hello again. I think we're the only two members of that particular fan club. We are,
0: but both of us have been noting this year seems to be a good year in Beijing. There are a lot of Azure-winged magpies around, so if you live near a park, uh, please go and appreciate them. We're also lucky today to be joined by later Hong Fincher, who's returning to Seneca for the second time, I think. Uh, She is a PhD candidate uh, in sociology at Tsinghua University and author of a forthcoming book on gender inequality in China, and in the last year or so, has also written for many of the world's most notable publications, including the New York Times, about uh, Chinese society and women's place in Chinese society. Welcome back to the show, later. Very happy to have you. Thank you, Jeremy. Glad to be here. So... um, before we get into the meaty topic of families and children, let's just take a quick look back at uh, the last almost half year, five months uh, of news in China. So
1: I'm getting slightly worried here. Is this going to be a test? with No, no, the no end? quiz, <laughs> no quiz. Let's
0: just we'll take it easy. We'll, if we forget anything, I'm sure our listeners will forgive us. But let's look at January. We had, um, you know, the big news in January, I think, was the Southern Weekly Censorship Affair. Uh, did that? Uh, we also had uh, more talk of a corruption cr- clampdown. The air apocalypse was certainly the big news for the foreign media and, you know, a growing uh, part of the Chinese media. And there was other stuff like the house sister scandal. That was January before Spring Festival. Does that sound about right? Was there anything we missed there?
1: Yeah, it sounds about right to me. I can't think that far back. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I think it's kind of interesting how some of those themes endure, as I guess they always do, corruption always rolls around. But the corruption crackdown this time does seem to have gone on a little bit longer than uh, people perhaps anticipated. There's an interesting piece by Russell Lee Moses, looking at it uh, on the Wall Street Journal site. Um, So I think that's perhaps been a bit longer lasting than people thought it might be. And it looks as if, you know, the... Upscale restaurants are kind of suffering as a result. Um, but the other thing on sort of you know Southern Weekly, I think is that there clearly is this attempt to sort of push back uh, against some of the opinion leaders. Uh, and so we've seen that on micro blogs with the closing and targeting of uh, certain accounts, um, but also with these instructions to universities and to academics not to talk about certain things. The seven, and, what
0: do they call the seven can't-talks? The can't seven talks. Knows, yes. um,
1: And then now we've seen this fresh instruction this week to um, you know make sure that all the young academics have proper political education and aren't saying things they shouldn't be saying. I haven't been
2: following it that closely, but um, that, that doesn't come as too much of a surprise to me because even before um, Xi Jinping actually became president. He had been talking about the need to control ideology more on the the premier university campuses. And there's no question that the Communist Party has a very aggressive recruiting presence um at the top universities in China. And um, it's it seems to me that, that this is going to be a real problem in the future. And it, I've been a little bit struck um, by my own experience as a PhD candidate um, at how conservative a lot of my classmates are and how nationalistic they are. Um, And I suppose I shouldn't have been that surprised really, but, um, but it, it does seem to me that In some cases, the the students on campus can be politically more orthodox than young people who are not pursuing a graduate education.
0: Because they see where their bread is buttered in terms of future job opportunities, do you think?
2: Absolutely. Um, I think the Tea Leaf Nation just ran something about how the best resume booster is Communist Party membership. And that's very clear... Um, certainly, among my classmates and, and a lot of other graduate students and, at premier universities in China, they they really want to become Communist Party members, and it's and it's very strongly encouraged. And um, n- not all of these people really believe in the Communist Party principles. Um, I'm not going to name any names, but I've certainly heard from a lot of young students who who simply say they're going to join the communist party because it's going to help them get a job
0: okay on that note let's move on to like february and march stories hacking which we haven't really examined on on seneca hacking chinese ministry restructuring xi jinping officially becoming president i don't know maybe hacking was the biggest story as far as the western press would go and that continues to play out is that
1: it's rolling around again just this week so we've seen these allegations out of australia about hackers based in china accessing all kinds of sensitive material we saw the stuff out of the states in the washington post uh, this is a theme that is not going away and i think what's interesting is that it seems as if the us is making more of an issue of it uh, much more and an much issue. more openly uh with chinese authorities
0: and it's being discussed as one of the things that Xi Jinping and Obama, that exactly. Obama will talk, will want to talk to Xi Jinping at the upcoming. What? Are, what when is it happening? The uh, Obama and Xi next week. Next week. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in California, two days of supposedly casual meetings in some nice place in California.
1: I'm sort of mentally imagining one of those um, Tony Blair sort of George Bush bonding experiences. You know, they go and. Aviator jackets together. and tight jeans, but maybe
2: not. Mm. <laughs> oh, that, actually, if that were to happen, that would be quite extraordinary and newsworthy. It would be, and it and would be fascinating.
1: No, sad, sadly, as <laughs> much just, as I like to imagine it, I don't think there's any chance of it actually yeah. happening. But I mean, just,
2: you know, if if Obama and C were able to to bond in any way, mm. if they were able to form some kind of personal connection or some kind of rapport, the personal level, I think, you know, that would be quite meaningful.
0: It would. And I think a lot of people are actually hoping for that. I mean, especially people involved in the US-China relationship, I think, look wistfully at, you know, Nixon back at Nixon. I think Orville Shell on the China File website mentioned that just recently about talking about the obama Sea meeting that everybody involved in this relationship looks wistfully back at, at, at Kissinger Nixon, and Nixon and Mao and this, the, the, this tremendous sort of epoch-changing events and the hopes that one could have a similar breakthrough in US-China relations.
1: But I mean, I think in in some ways, it, it's interesting when I was talking to somebody today about the fact that we now have much more knowledge, you know, the Chinese have much more knowledge of life overseas. Many of them have studied abroad or have kids abroad. Um, you know, we have much more knowledge of life in China, in the West. And yet, those sorts of contacts the kind of the informal contacts actually that used to be possible. You know, somebody told me they used to go bowling with the uh, foreign ministry officials. I can't imagine that really happening now. Um, so, there they used to be that more personal level of contact with some parts of the Chinese system in a way that really sort of doesn't happen now. Um, and I think that's actually a big loss because you do need people to have a moment where they may not be the best of friends but they may have you know they have that sort of understanding of each other i guess or personal connection in some way and i think it's much harder for that to happen but i mean maybe it's only the guys who at the top who can do it that would be the optimistic view yeah.
0: Let's just quickly roll on, because we're actually, we're talking a little bit longer for this section than I thought, and we have a big, meaty topic to look forward to. But the March, April, May, and we're at the end of May, so big stories. Apple gets called out on CCTV. That was a huge story in the Western media. I don't know if it really matters, but it's, it's, it's a story of fascination to the media. There was the failed uh, bird flu's, bird flu's failed attempt to take over the news, h seven n nine uh did not go anywhere uh, and there thank was, goodness thank goodness and I mean I have to say from my point of view, the Chinese government seems to be handling this kind of health problem at least uh, in a very responsible way from what I can judge
2: uh, yeah well i I just <laughs> add briefly that I was actually here for the SARS epidemic, and it's just a complete um complete contrast at uh, between uh, what's ha- the way the Chinese government has handled the statistics and being much more transparent about yeah. the extent of the disease compared with the way they were during the SARS epidemic.
0: Right.
1: I'm just relieved they didn't cull the azure-winged magpies. Obviously.
0: Yes. No. Indeed. <laughs> um, I was here too. It was a very, very different. You know, and one. Sometimes one thinks there's no progress at all, but some some things make you you realize that there has been a tremendous amount of progress in China in certain areas. That's one of them. And then there was an earthquake in in Yan, which, again, maybe is a sign of progress in the handling of the news. I mean, it wasn't as big as the Sichuan earthquake, but um, there does seem to be a much more, a less propaganda-based way of dealing with natural disasters. Um, I don't know, would you agree with that?
2: um, uh, am I correct in saying that Xi Jinping actually went and visited some of the earthquake victims, and he kissed a baby?
0: Was oh that, yeah, was that
2: the yes? There was, was a photo, really a really yeah. <laughs> weird photo of him kissing a baby. Yes. Yeah.
0: Hmm.
2: So that was that was a propaganda opportunity for him, for sure.
0: Yes, yeah. and interesting that he kissed a baby because that's not really a Chinese thing, is it? Kissing babies? I mean, no, I don't it, recall. It was an
2: unusual photograph.
0: Hmm. It's, I mean, that's a specifically American thing mm. I think of. I don't think politicians in South Africa kiss babies. Mm. So, yeah. All right. Well, you know, other things. China is having a dispute with nearly all of its neighbors, including India. Lots of talk of the Chinese dream. Uh, the dueling poisoning case, which we've covered a little bit on this podcast, to Kaiser's annoyance. Um these are the news stories. Anything else you think we should say about the last six months? Has there been anything that either of you have thought was notable or significant?
1: I'm sure there have probably been lots of things that were crucial, but whenever one asks, gets asked a question, <laughs> on like, the that one's mind goes blank. One's mind goes
0: blank. So let's just move on to the subject that we know is going to be meaty, um, which is, I, I, I'm going to take it, I'm reading from, I think, a draft of one of Tanya's stories that she's filed and hasn't been published yet, but maybe by the time this podcast is live. um, Five street children suffocate while trying to keep warm inside a rubbish bin in winter. This was just last year. Two headmasters are accused of sexually assaulting schoolgirls. A father sews up the mouth of his young daughter. Teachers beat and torment their kindergarten pupils. Popular Chinese culture idealizes childhood, and particularly since the introduction of strict birth control laws, many families pamper or even spoil their offspring. Respect the old, cherish the young, runs one maxim. But in recent months, a spate of scandals over abuse and neglect have shocked the public and highlighted the vulnerability of children. And you didn't even mention, I don't know if the later version did, the shocking car uh, theft case a few months ago where a car thief stole a car, uh, found there was a small baby in the car, and then killed the baby in Dongbo, buried it in the snow, which... It was rather shocking so what's going on i mean this is a, a country where everybody will tell you people respect families and family is the most important thing and there does seem to have been a space of um terrible things involving families you also didn't mention uh baby 59 are they calling it which maybe
1: would you like to explain tanya uh, the, the piece does now mention ah. it because i was writing before baby 59 this is the baby that was found uh in a sewer pipe Uh, trapped and rescued by firefighters and medics and the initial suggestion was that the baby had been abandoned. Uh, What I always kind of suspected was more likely um, as we then found out was that in fact it was um, a a very young mother who was obviously in a state of denial perhaps about her pregnancy and had hidden it Um, and she said that she didn't realise she was going to give birth. The baby came out, got trapped and she was too scared to say it was hers so she raised the alarm uh, and pretended she'd just heard this baby crying.
0: Wow. What's going on, Leda? Why why is the family <laughs> – why are these terrible news items coming out in this land where children are supposed to be respected so much?
2: Well, um, I think perhaps Tanya can speak more to Baby 59 because you've been covering it and I haven't been paying quite as much attention. But, but I mean, just from what I can tell, it it seems to be an accident. I mean, it seems to be kind of an aberration. It doesn't really – it was a boy. If it had been a girl, I would have thought that – Maybe she was trying to kill the baby because um, that does happen still. Female infanticide does still happen and there's a lot of sex-selective abortion and there's a strong cultural preference for sons, but
1: that's not the case
2: because it was a baby boy and, and I think...
1: I, I mean, in fact, one of the things that struck me about this case, which is why I I sort of was when You know, a lot of people, I think, mostly people outside China rather than correspondents here, in fact... We're trying to say, oh, is this about the one-child policy? And actually everybody here was saying, well, no, it's really not. Um, I, th- I think, you know, th- this is a story in a way that's not really about China. We've actually seen, if you go and Google on the net, there's been a whole spate of horrible cases in the US uh, with women dumping babies in toilets uh, or giving birth to babies in toilets and then just leaving uh, them. And, you know, I think the sort of the recurrent themes are women who don't know they're pregnant are in denial um, are clearly sort of traumatized in some way um, but what I think and I mean in a sense you could say that of all the abuses I'm certainly not suggesting that China is the only place uh, with child abuse because very clearly I've sat through some horrible horrible cases in the UK um, but what I think is interesting and in a way actually reassuring is the fact that these cases are now being reported Um And there's been this string of stories and and people are clearly saying, you know, this is horrific. How are we allowing this to happen? Um, So that's one thing that's striking, that it feels as if perhaps people are becoming more aware of how vulnerable kids can be. And that beyond this rosy image of childhood, there can actually be a lot of suffering and trauma. Um, But secondly, unfortunately, the, the sort of the bad side is that it's showing up the many problems with the child protection system here, which is at best embryonic, I think you'd say.
2: Yeah, actually on the topic of child sex abuse, um, just today uh, this prominent sex worker rights activist, Ye Haiyan, apparently um, was threatened by thugs and she's now under uh, police custody. Um, But I I did want to bring this up because she she just went to Hainan um, to protest this principal, and I believe it was an elementary school principal, who just rented a hotel room uh, together with another government official and took, I think, six or seven elementary school girls and um, certainly sexually assaulted them. And he's been accused of rape, but so far the case is unsettled. But um, so yeah, Haiyan went there and organized a protest and it was quite imaginative and it really caught on, on on Weibo and a lot of people have imitated her sign and her sign said, um, uh, principal rent a room with me, let the schoolgirls go. And so I, I was noticing on Weibo that a lot of people have s- used her slogan, taking pictures of themselves, hundreds and hundreds of people or maybe thousands. Mm-hmm. And so th- this is was a protest that was gaining traction and then today She was accosted by all these thugs and threatened, and I don't know what's going to happen to her.
1: Uh, When we asked police, they said that they were talking to her. They haven't detained her. She just happens to be at the police station.
0: Can we talk about her a little bit? I mean, she's a very interesting person. I remember I first ran into, I think it must have been 2005 or 2006, when she started a blog, and she was posting naked pictures of herself to the blog. Um, and she'd already started using this pseudonym, right, the, the hooligan swallow, the um, yeah Hai Yan. Um, and she didn't seem, at that time, I mean, I suppose there was a kind of a feminist angle to it of her saying, this is me and I'm going to show myself to the world. But she didn't seem to have a cause in quite the same way that she has adopted causes now. What is, she, what is her mission in life? You know where does she fit into uh, Chinese activism um, in 2013?
2: Well, um, in the last couple of years, she was quite a crusader for sex worker rights. So she actually uh, wanted to highlight the plight of prostitutes, and she actually became a prostitute for a few days and, and wrote about
0: it. Um, and she- specifically. Um, so well, uh, catering to migrant workers, right?
1: And I mean, that yeah. was one of the interesting things as well, that it wasn't just about the sex workers. But in a way, right. there, was a, there was a lot of empathy for the clients as well. And she's just a fascinating yeah, woman. Yeah, she,
2: she is really fascinating. And it's just, um, <laughs> I have to admit, I only just recently started following her on Twitter and Weibo. Um I wasn't paying that much attention to her earlier, but... But she had been saying over the last few weeks that she's decided to expand her activism to women's rights more broadly, not just sex worker rights. And, um, but she seems she's a very fascinating person. And um, just her choice of, of protest is very creative and imaginative. And, and I think just the fact that so many people are imitating her on Weibo is, really speaks to the creativity of her, this this particular vision she had in protesting the, the principle.
1: Uh, and I think this is fascinating. I mean, if I can take a sideways step away from China today and plug the Guardian simultaneously, I mean, there was, there was a great piece today by a colleague of mine which was all about lessons that feminists today could learn from the suffragettes. And some of the things that she talked about there seemed to me actually really to sort of fit in this mould, because they did things that were not socially acceptable. They did things, you know, they put themselves in positions, they did things that were unfeminine, that were seen as being impolite, that were seen as being offensive. Um, They were daring, they used spectacle in a really interesting way. And I think we've always needed people who work within the system, um, or work within sort of the boundaries of what's considered normal and perhaps make their protests in very rational ways. But I think also you need people like this who just kind of tear up the rule book and say, I'm going to do my own thing.
0: So, I mean, we're looking at a situation when it comes to, I mean, we're we're talking, I guess, again, about women, uh, women's rights and children's rights, where it seems to be a very uh, um, contradictory situation. On the one hand, you have people like, uh, yeah, Hayen, hooligan Swallow, doing this kind of protest. On the other hand, you have the father sewing up his daughter's mouth, sewing it shut, and the street children suffocating in the garbage can, and the principal hiring a hotel room to rape the children. You know, w- w- what's what's going on? Is it just chaos, or is there some kind of direction?
1: Um. I do think in some ways things are going backwards here. And actually later would be in a much better position to comment on that because that's sort of the the focus on her work in terms of feminism. Um, I think in terms of sort of abuse more specifically, as I said, it's a worldwide phenomenon. And in some ways, if people are talking about it, like people are now talking about domestic violence a bit more, I I think that's actually really heartening. I mean, it's it's a, a very sort of small step forwards. Um, and God knows, there's a lot still to be done. But it does feel to me as if, in the long run, this could be a good thing because people are people are just looking at this and saying, "This isn't okay." You know, this this is happening, and we don't accept it. And you know, in most societies, you look at the UK, and we had this recent sort of spate of historic sexual abuse cases coming out from the 60s and 70s uh, in the wake of the uh, TV presenter Jimmy Savile. It's as if there was this sort of sudden awakening, and people said, "You know, how did we turn a blind eye to this?" Because people did know it was going on. And yet somehow they just sort of let it happen until the point came when people actually said, no, we're not going to take this anymore.
2: Yeah, I would agree with you, actually, because um, I'm quite certain that child sex abuse and certainly rampant domestic violence has existed for decades. Um, It's just that nobody talked about it. And um, I think that slowly there is certainly greater awareness among some women at any rate, that they can speak about it. Um, I might add as well that this Kim Lee, um, the American woman, the wife of Lee Young, the founder of Crazy English, her domestic violence divorce case was extremely high profile. And she sort of garnered herself this huge following of tens of thousands of women, a lot of whom have been victims of domestic violence themselves. And um Using her privilege as an American woman, she's able to to win this rather landmark domestic violence ruling in the Beijing court.
0: So what actually, I mean, when you say win, what did she get out of it?
2: Well, I wouldn't say, it was really a symbolic win. I mean, she was awarded um, a sum, I can't remember exactly how much, it may have been about 12 million B which sounds like an awful lot, but in reality, given how wealthy her husband was, is really nothing. Um, But the fact that the court ruled in her favor was extraordinary because by and large, there is still no national effective law against domestic violence. And so most women are really completely at a loss if they're victims of domestic violence. Um, The courts almost never rule in their favor. And um, in this case, the Beijing court actually ordered a restraining order. And it was the first time ever that a Beijing court had ordered that. Um, And it was a three-month restraining order against her husband or her former husband. So this was seen as quite a big symbolic victory. And I, I... I'm hopeful that perhaps it might lead to some more legal reforms in the future, but who knows?
1: I mean, it is, a, you know, it, it, it is a global issue, and I was sort of really struck last week. I was thinking about domestic violence in China last week, and I opened the, sort of, the Guardian website the next day, and there's a story about a woman who's just been killed by her violent ex-partner in the UK despite multiple... Please for help to the police. You know, in the UK. It's something like two women a week are killed by their partner or ex-partner. Two women a week two women a in week. the UK. It's in really? The UK. Yeah. Gosh,
0: that sounds high.
1: Yeah, um, it's a, a, a really frightening statistic. And so um, you don't
0: even have guns there. That that, that is very frightening. Yeah,
1: um, and so it's really it's it's not just China, um, but it's there's obviously a particularly severe problem here, and partly because. Gloria Steinem always sort of said in the US, you know, that there didn't used to be such a thing as domestic violence. It was just called life. Um, and there clearly has been that sort of sense here that it's OK to sort of, you know, be your wife, be, uh, you know, as long as it's not sort of out of control or again with kids, you know, that physical chastisement is sort of seen as being OK. Clearly, Well,
0: that's what Kim Lee's husband himself. For. I mean, he said even on Wayboard and he basically said, was well, that's what we do. Yeah, on, and I believe right, he it?
2: actually said it on a TV show, yeah. not just Weibo. Um, yeah, but but there is this culture in China, um, don't expose family ugliness. And um, so the, the, as the, bad... The dirty
0: it, laundry must not well, be exposed to yeah, the outside. Yeah,
2: really... Um, so, yes, domestic violence is very bad in many countries. But the problem with China that, that I find quite horrifying is that these victims when they try to help themselves they have no recourse by and large and that's very frightening whereas in other countries like the uk or the us if a woman actually goes and seeks help for herself she by and large can get it not always
0: um, we've sort of conflated in our discussion. I mean, we started off talking about the abuse of children and babies, and we've kind of conflated it so far with violence or abuse of women. Uh, what's the relation between these two things? Is are, are they part of the same problem? Abuse of children and abuse of women.
1: Um, I th- I think there are common threads. I don't think they're precisely. I think they're obviously not precisely the same thing for a number of reasons. And and I do think, for example, I mean, while I was saying on the whole, I think we're hearing more about cases of child abuse because people are saying this is a problem and we should be reporting on this, which is a good thing, you know. Um, I think, for example, quite a lot of experts would suggest that there may be a link as well with the kind of social changes we've seen with migration where you have um, kids being left behind in the countryside to be brought up by grandparents who are often not really very capable of looking after them. They're probably working on their farms as well. And so you've got kids who are very vulnerable there, who perhaps have less strong relationships with their parents. They've never really bonded with their parents. You can get kind of family difficulties as well there, and they're obviously much more vulnerable to abuse and exploitation. Well,
2: there's also this, this general notion of um, the parents being the boss in China. So that, that there there certainly isn't this culture of individuality among children I mean, there's there's a big children's rights movement in the US and a lot of other Western countries and um, I don't think that's quite catching on in China although I think maybe some more educated um, you know more affluent urban middle class parents are starting to hope that their kids you know learn to Embrace their own individuality but by and large the parents the mothers and fathers can be very strict with their children and um, you know there's a very heavy emphasis on obedience and filial piety and I don't mean to suggest that filial piety lends itself to child sex abuse but the fact is that the parents are strongly in control
0: and I there's think... an authoritarian relationship well, between children and parents in the home
2: well there 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 is say, yeah. Um I don't want to overstate that but
0: um that it sometimes exists. Sometimes. Um is there a an more of an expectation do you think in China that children will look after their parents when the parents are old, you know, and that the children because of the sort of filial, filial piety that the children's role is in some ways to serve the adult? Does that do you think that's
2: Oh, absolutely. Yes. I mean, that's a very strong tradition. Um, It it, it used to be that the son was expected to provide financial support and emotional support for the parents because the daughter would marry out and then she would take care of her mother-in-law and her in-laws. But that's recently been changing. There's been a lot of research about... um, it's it's a little bit related to my research as well uh, because I'm I'm looking at the real estate market and and now there there's been a, to a certain extent a, a reversal of these expectations that children take care of the parents because now parents of sons will often scrape and save and make major financial sacrifices to buy a very expensive home for their son, um, but at the same time daughters are now expected to take care of their parents. And they're stepping up in, uh, in many ways, taking over from the sons, providing more financial support or more emotional support. They're, they're more expected to take care of the parents, whereas in, in the past it used to be just the son.
1: Although in, in many cases as well, I mean, what's interesting is that children aren't fulfilling those expectations so i mean i think generally children still expect well certainly looking at friends of mine you know they do expect to look after their parents in a way that people in the west wouldn't and in a way that i think on the whole is actually a very good thing um but you know there are a growing number of parents who are finding that those kids are not willing to provide for them and uh, i think i've talked before on the show about um uh, yen yunxiang's fantastic book on sort of life in a chinese village but that is really fascinating how you know not even in the cities, but in villages, you're getting cases of elder neglect, elder abuse. Um, really horrifying. In some ways, actually, the elderly are another group of very vulnerable people.
2: Absolutely, and there's also a, there's starting to be a booming business in um, real estate for the elderly, actually, um, because they're never that never existed before. Because the parents would just live with their children, or the children were expected to take care of them. And now um, there are some new real estate developers that are building these, you know, elderly the nursing homes.
0: Nursing homes, right? So people are going to just abandon their parents to the nursing home, basically, is what's going to yeah, happen. Yeah, so do you that,
2: think? that that definitely is um, is a trend.
0: Has there been much reporting in the last six months or so about uh, you know government attempts to make people look after their their parents? There have been a few initiatives over the last few years where you know they've been. Uh, uh, um, supposedly fines or penalties for people who don't look after their parents who aren't filial enough is that is that still something that is talked about? Do you think in China
1: it does pop up every now and then? I have to say my favourite was when they took the uh, you know the famous filial exemplars. Is it twelve or twenty four? I can't remember off mm-hmm. the top of my head. So it used to be sort of you know strangling a tiger with your bare hands to save your dad's life. And these days they updated them. It's all about teaching your parents to use the internet.
0: give them an ipad and some old age milk formula without melamine and you're sorted okay um i think we're kind of just about at the point in our show when we should get on to recommendations so uh tanya what you got for us uh
1: it's a fantastic book called the birth of chinese feminism which has some very dense academic subtitle that i cannot recall offhand um But what's really interesting about it is that you have this woman who is way ahead of her time. It's actually a a sort of group of essays by different people, but by far the most interesting um, are the translations of the writings of uh, He Yin Jun, who was writing about a century ago. And yet the kind of ideas she comes up with are really challenging. I mean, theoretically, she's very interesting uh, for lots of reasons. Uh, But more broadly, she's an anarcho-feminist who's kind of Tearing up the rule book and saying, you know, well, here are these male liberal scholars who are kind of trying to offer us sort of education for sort of wealthy girls as if that's the be all and end all, and that's not really good enough, is it? So she's interested in labour. I mean, she's interested in women as a whole. She's really sort of interested in, in moving a long way. I mean, she sort of slates Western women as well saying well they all think they're so liberated but they're still taking their husband's names and it's just fascinating when you read this you think this was written a century ago and there are so many lessons in there which i think are very relevant not just for china but for the rest of us um i'm not slagging off leaned in because i think it's a a valuable book but there's been so much sort of focus on um sort of women at the top on elite women Um, on women's leadership. Those things are very important. But I think it's also we have to look beyond them and think about what's happening to the poorest women who are working in minimum wage jobs or not getting a minimum wage at all. We need to think about sex workers, we need to think about women in the factories, um, and all these issues that go beyond the sort of Ivy League or Oxbridge or uh, Runmin University and Tsinghua elite.
0: Narco-feminism, huh? I like that. When you first said it, I thought you said narcofeminism, which I thought <laughs> was something <laughs> very interesting. That's for the next show. <laughs> the next show <laughs> later. All right.
2: Well, I have to say, sorry to bore you, but that is also my recommendation, and um, I really want to no emphasize: problem. this is a fantastic book. So it was edited by Lydia Lowe and Rebecca Carl and Dorothy Coe. And it really, I think, is um, quite quite a breakthrough piece of scholarship. And it's really stunning to me that um, when you think about all the courses that are taught on feminist theory, especially in the U.S., they all emphasize, you know, the American feminists. And um, one of them who is very influential is Judith Butler, who's written about undoing gender. And breaking out of the traditional male and female roles, and what's extraordinary is to read this he Yin Zhen, who wrote in 1907 about this what she calls the Nan male female as the basis of all oppression of women, and that if we can undo this gender binary, undo you know the dichotomy between men and women then we will liberate women, we will liberate everybody. And it's, it's it's really fascinating to think that she came up with these ideas over 100 years ago, and that when you're thinking about feminist theory, um, which has emerged really more in the last few decades, they, they don't mention her at all. Nobody really knew and about so her. so
1: few of my Chinese friends. I mean, you know, very educated liberal urban women you ask them if they know her and they all say no basically so she's this sort of lost voice and yet a really incredible voice i mean i i think in the book it suggests almost the closest you'd get is somebody like emma goldman really sort of in a western tradition but uh, it really is a terrific book and i promise this is not an international feminist conspiracy (laughs) we didn't arrange this even though it sounds (laughs) like it we just think it's a terrific book uh, i mean in fact
0: you know (laughs) and this show wasn't even really necessarily supposed to be kind of Feministy. It was just a discussion of news. And then we somehow arrived at the place where a lot of what we've talked about is women's issues, which is good because as some re, uh, listeners have complained, uh, we don't do uh, enough. Uh, or at least we seem to have a bit of a kind of a male frat boy bias um, and this wasn't an attempt to correct that, but if it has gone some way to correcting that, I'm not going to complain. My recommendation is nothing to do with feminism. It's beijingofdreams.com, which is a website I just discovered today. Thank you to the Twitter feed of Jeremiah Jenny, uh, the uh, Qing historian. And it's a website that has pictures of mostly parts of Beijing that don't exist anymore, the old gates and uh, city walls uh, and bits and pieces that one imagines when one sees a map with place names uh, but can't really see anymore beijingofdreams.com.
1: That sounds very good and I'm going to be really cheeky now as we had the same recommendation I reckon I can put another one in. Yeah you
0: can please. Because it's on
1: a similar theme which is uh, Zhang jin terrific interview this week which was the China story I think it was a china story and that was a great interview and it's very interesting about being an activist and being a woman be- because um even more than the Seneca podcast i'd say probably the world of activism has She's a been quite male boy. dominated yeah. and there's been a certain sort of macho element to it um and it's interesting this year actually that we have seen a lot of women taking action in different ways mm-hmm. but it's really? well worth reading
0: Well, do tell it's well, just no, before a, we a end lot the is podcast
1: perhaps a, 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 Starting from a very low base, we have seen a number of um, feminist demonstrations. We've had the women uh, complaining about the college education um, levels being set differently, the, yeah, and so forth. So I, sh- I shouldn't say a lot, but it just it feels like there have been a lot more than there were, which was not very many. Is yeah. that fair? Um, I I think that is fair. Yeah, and there c- certainly
2: could be more, and I and and that's partly why I'm so. Um, <laughs> Disheartened to see that Ye Haiyan is being harassed so much because I I I I was just thinking about how visionary this latest protest of hers was, Mm. um and and how much traction
0: it's gotten on Weibo. But I mean, in some ways, being harassed in China means that you're getting somewhere, right? Doesn't it? You know?
2: Yes. Um. As long as they don't, you know, completely disappear her. her.
0: Yeah. Well, on that grim note, thank you two very much for joining the Seneca Podcast, and we'll see or you'll hear us next week at the same time. Thank you very much.
2: Thank you, Jeremy. Thank you.